When you hear about climate change in the media, what do you think? Do you feel doom? Or do you also have a sense that you and we might be able to make a difference? Today's Changemaker Chat is with Amanda McKenzie. Amanda is a climate communicator, a self-described catalyzer of change. She spent most of her life passionately advocating for justice in the environment. When she learned about climate change as a university student, it became her focus. Amanda is the head of the Climate Council, and there she's become one of Australia's leading climate communicators. She explains her approach to public communications, that the surround sound produced by the news, social media, and public commentating creates a sense of what is possible and common sense to everyone, from us as citizens to politicians and industry. Moreover, for Amanda, what we hear in the news isn't just influential for what is said, it's influential based on who the messenger is. Building a public communication strategy isn't just about you speaking a lot, but working with influential communities of people to speak based on their expertise, lived experience, and recognised authority. Amanda explains how over years she has worked with scientists, researchers, and leading cultural and community figures to help raise awareness of the threat of climate change and make it clear that we can do something about it, working with everyone from emergency responders to cricket captain Pat Cummins. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. You can find out more about Changemakers at our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Amanda McKenzie, welcome to Changemakers. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's our pleasure. So let's just start. Uh, Amanda, you've done lots of brilliant things, particularly around climate, but why don't you, in your own words, tell us what kind of changemaker are you? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, isn't it, to describe. I see myself as a communicator, so trying to, and maybe a translator, trying to take all of this complexity around the climate issue and make it something that is tangible and relevant to people that gets them motivated, gets them up in the morning, um, trying to create change. And it's not just me as the communicator. I try and support others to do that. So I suppose the other word that I think describes me as being a catalyst, I try and um, create systems and communication tools and a whole range of things that um, help other people to do the work on climate as well, whether that's in communication, policy, the whole different range of aspects of um, tackling the crisis. So yeah, a communicator and a catalyst is what I like to think of myself as. I love it. You're catalyzing good communication. I mean, it's so important in this space, given how every week or so we get a new report out and it's devastating news around the climate. It's easy to just feel doom and gloom. So we are going to talk today about how we can see and express climate in different in a different form. But before we get into that, I my my interest and curiosity is like, why did you become a catalyst communicator on climate change? With all the C's, right? How how did this story develop for you? And you know, in thinking about telling us how, like, tell go go as far back as makes sense. You know, like. 
where did these ideas, these forms of change become real and um, part of your your life? It's a really good question. I think I was always interested in social justice and environmental issues from a really young age. I remember my mum calling my sister and I the green police at home around you oh know, recycling gosh. in the home and things like that. My parents were both both very community orientated in um, in their lives, and my mum's a psychologist. She works children and um, with adults as well, and she was also worked at, in teaching. So she was very community minded in the way that she operated. And my parents both had a strong sort of social justice lens. So I really sort of from a young age wanted to make a contribution and I also felt like I wanted to create a meaningful life. So through my sort of teenage years and my early 20s, I was sort of searching for what is the issue that I will pour my heart and soul into and I worked on a whole range of different sort of justice issues. I worked for a while on um, asylum seekers during the time of the Tampa. I worked at a number of different environmental organisations, all sort of as a volunteer. I did some work on um, Uh, some other justice issues as well but I think when I found climate change I was like oh okay this affects every other issue that I care about it affects it in such a multi-dimensional way it just makes sense for me to work on this and um, I think that is I am really motivated about about it in that sense of I want to protect life I want to protect the majesty and beauty of the world we're so privileged to live in I see it as the biggest social justice issue that has ever existed because it affects people from now into the future in an indefinite sort of way changing the global climate so I think that's why it really resonated with me I felt like this could be an area of intense purpose for my whole life yeah well, <laughs> certainly in this lifetime, you know, when you were born and when you're alive, it doesn't seem like it's going away anytime soon. But what I think is interesting about, you know, sometimes people think about topics they're interested in as like they're isolated issues. Like even something, you know, interested in refugees and then inter- interested in environmentalism, you're a green police, which I think is hilarious. But what you're saying is this, that there's something about climate that is actually different different to that, that it's, that it cuts across, cuts across everything. I mean, I know you're a communications expert, but like, did did you initially, is that what you initially saw or is that something that you learned? Like, how did you come to that perspective? Yeah, I think I I read a book on climate change, Tim Flannery's The Weathermakers, while I was on a hike in Tassie. And I remember the sinking feeling that I got as I was reading that book because I felt like I was seeing the future sort of unfolding in front of me and anticipating the intense degree of human suffering at a level that we have never seen before. And I was working on... um, at a refugee agency at a time at the time as a um, law student doing legal claims for asylum seekers and I remember just thinking about the floods of refugees and having seen that in the micro of some family's personal experience and thinking about that in the macro of these individual universes just times 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 as a consequence of the climate crisis and thinking wow I've got to do something to try and um, prevent the level of suffering that I can see coming right and so I also think that what's I mean that's a really powerful story um what also I think is interesting there is was a sense like I'm here like sometimes people think about climate change and and fear as a 
seems to be, you know, I'm scared of what's going to happen. I've got to do something. Mm. But but what I hear in your words is actually a sense of hope that you could do something different. Like to mm. what extent do you think that different emotions were important for your sort of how you progressed in this space? Yeah, I think activists are often thinking about how to communicate with a balance of hope and fear. And I think for me, fear was a highly motivating factor. And, you know, for me, that was okay that it was so shocking and that kind of got me out of bed. It didn't send me into a place of despair. It was like, I've got to do something about it. But I think what was overwhelming for me was I don't know how to do something about this. Like I was a university student. I'd done, as I said, a whole range of different sort of small scale things. But then I was kind of got my head around this global issue and thought, I don't know how I can make a change on this. So it took me a long time, probably, you know, six months of just feeling really scared to get to the point where I was able to do something about it. And it was really my sister who's very practical. She's like, you've been talking about it and worrying about it. What is the something that you can do? Like you can't save the world tomorrow, but what can you do? And that really got me out of this, it's impossible, it's too hard, it's too big thinking, to the what is the piece that is mine? And that's still the advice I give to other people as they tackle this issue because I think it is one of the reasons that people sometimes shy away from working on climate because it seems too big and too um, too unwieldy to grasp hold of where's your individual contribution. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, Amanda, like, what did you do? Tell us, tell us, what did you do? <laughs> um, well, the first thing that I did was my sister and I started organising talks in our university in Melbourne. We were both at Melbourne Uni and also at Monash and a few other university campuses. I'd met Helen Caldicott, who is a really strong anti-nuclear advocate, and she'd just written a book on climate. And she said, if you want to do something, I'll be there. I'll do speeches for you. Just organize it. So my sister and I like organized her to speak at these different university campuses. And we handed out flyers saying, do you want to do something on climate? We don't know what it is, but come along to this meeting. And so we got a handful of people coming along to this meeting and, um, then started a group called the Australian Climate Change Education Network. Yeah, from going from I don't know what to do to then establishing a, a, an a Australian network. network. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. And we just started doing sort of education pieces. This is before Al Gore's movie had come out. So the awareness in Australia of climate was very low. That process was really just doing what so many activists before us had done on their issues, just starting to raise awareness in the community and we were working with young people in particular because we were young and we thought, you know, this is the biggest social justice issue for young people. The young you are, the more impacted you will be. Um, and through that work, I then met a series of other activists that were all young people working on climate in different ways. So Anna Rose was had just come back from a trip to the States where she had seen a coalition of youth organisations come together and do activities on climate through the Energy Action Coalition. And um, she invited me to a group of other young people in Australia who then became the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. So, again, a group of youth activists from lots of different walks of life that were there to do something collectively on climate and get young people engaged. And so it was really resonant and Ascent, the group that we'd already created, got absorbed into the AYCC in its sort of first year or so of the AYCC getting off the ground. Excellent. So step one, organize all the young people. Well, that's it. I mean, AYCC is still around. It obviously was a successful space. What did you learn from being in that space? Like what did you take from your experience there? Yeah, I learned so much in the AYCC. I think what was great about being a young person and 
working on, you know, a social issue that you find really critical is that you don't know what's possible and impossible. And so, so much of what we attempted to do was doing things that we didn't know was impossible. And we just come up with really creative, interesting tactics. Like I remember we were really frustrated in one of the elections that neither side of politics was talking about um, climate change. So we hired every elephant suit in Australia and we started just chasing Tony Abbott and Julia Gillard around the country with these young people in elephant suits and we'd wait at the airport and like ambush them being the climate elephant in the room. And we, <laughs> and we literally knew where every elephant suit in Australia was and we'd hired all of them. It turns out there's not <laughs> many of them. And we just had this. Like, They're endangered huge, too, apparently. <laughs> yeah. We just had this huge group of young people with this like really interesting tactic and it got journalists really engaged in that election and it started to get questions being then asked of Julia Gillard, you know, here's the climate elephant at a yet another press conference. What do you think about climate change in this election? So it was really interesting being involved in, you know, really creative tactics. I think uh, learning about what it takes to get people really motivated to stay with your issue and volunteer. I think that the glue that you can create in youth organising through creating a social experience, through getting people to have lots of experience of learning, often people would come to the AYCC having never learned anything about activism before and then meeting their sort of tribe of people. It was a real sort of glue to stay involved in the organisation and then giving them amazing experiences of interesting things to do where we all felt like we were making a difference. There was that real sense of purpose. So I think I learned a lot about what it takes to bring people together and to organise. I think I learned a lot about about what it takes to make policy change as well. I think I experienced some really severe disappointments during that time. Then sort of 2009 was the year when it was called the CPRS scheme. It was a carbon... Oh, we aren't we hearing about it today? Yeah, we're hearing about it again. It's all going back in time. And, you know, the CPRS was the first major attempt by an Australian government to create some regulation on the big polluters. It ended up falling in a big fiery pit, a similar timing to when um, the Copenhagen Climate Talks, which was the big international conference at the time, fell over. And I remember vividly working with youth organisers from around the world around that. And we'd totally drunk the Kool-Aid. We thought this is the make or break moment. If you can't get it right in Copenhagen, we give up. And we sort of imagined that the world leaders would get it and we'd get something through. We didn't think about what happens if it doesn't work. And I remember we spent like most of the AYCC's money. We got back. We didn't have any money left to pay ourselves. I remember us all lying on the floor going like, what the hell do we do now? And we had to ring up one of our um, treasured donors, Rob Purvis, who's behind so much of the great climate activism in Australia and say, hey, we kind of ran out of money because we spent it all on Copenhagen because we really believed that we were changing the world. But it turns out that Changing the world's really hard and it's taking a long time, much longer than we thought. Actually, can you help us bankroll ourselves a bit longer? And he said, okay, but only if you get a proper bookkeeper. And you don't do <laughs> Those sort of learnings about how hard change is, how long it takes, what is a win, like all of those things I experienced during those years at the AYCC through some, you know, a, a roller coaster of different, of different political action. Yeah, okay. So I feel like this takes us to the place that you are now. I'm keen so you're at the Climate Council, but the Climate Council had a curious and interesting start. So tell us about tell us about the step that took you from AYCC to to becoming part of this thing called the Climate Council. Yeah, so I retired from the AYCC when I got to be sort of 28. We had a rule that everyone needed to be under under 30, and decided I'd do something different and was really drawn to communications work because I thought 
um, although it wasn't my training specifically, my view was that if we didn't change the operating environment for politicians, which is communications, it's the media, it's social media, it's the um, surround sound, if you like, around the decision makers, we weren't going to get the action that was required. We needed to change the sort of what was possible for decision makers that wanted to do good things and make it impossible for other, other politicians that didn't want to do good things to um, keep holding us back. So communications really appealed to me and at that time the Climate Commission had just been established, which was a government body which was established with a whole lot of scientists to communicate climate issues, both the problem and the solution. But it was a very vexed time because Julia Gillard a few weeks before that had described the climate policy that she, her government was going to put forward with the Greens as a carbon tax. There's endless debate about whether or not it was a tax in the end, but that term stuck and Tony Abbott, the very conservative Prime Minister, uh, opposition leader at the time really went to town on that and it was very detrimental to her her leadership. And so it was really the uh, climate, the interest in climate and support for climate solutions bottomed out over that period of 2011 to 2013. It didn't help as well that it rained basically for two years with a strong La Nina phase after there'd been the millennial drought, which had really raised awareness about climate, but it was very shallow that um, people's understanding. So people equated drought with climate, but they didn't understand that the rainfall that was very extreme as well was um, driven by climate as well. The, the Climate Commission was supposed to change people's attitudes on climate. And as I got into the Climate Commission, working with a whole range of different scientists, we toured the country and it was a really difficult environment. Tim Flannery, the commissioner, was getting death threats at that time. There were, it was an extremely negative political environment. It was toxic and public opinion was at its lowest. So um, it wasn't surprising that Tony Abbott won the next election and part of that was on a platform of taking apart all the climate action that had been put in place by the previous Gillard government in concert with the Greens. And so we knew that the Climate Commission was on the chopping block. We didn't know exactly how it would be taken apart. So we had hatched a plan very quietly. I just said to Tim Flannery in the airport, like, we could probably take this into a not-for-profit organisation and crowdfund for it. What do you think? And I remember him just rubbing his hands together and saying, yes, yes, let's do that. <laughs> I love it. And the idea was born. <laughs> the idea was born. So four days after, no, I think it was seven days after the election, it was very soon afterwards, Greg Hunt, who was the new climate minister, said, you know, this is going to be abolished. They went out, you know, here's the head on the chopping block as an indication straight up that we've got a different approach on climate. And Tim Flannery was very well known. So it was like, let's get rid of this guy first. And we then four days later launched the climate commission, sorry, the Climate Council, the new not-for-profit. You've got a thing for C's, Amanda, yeah, I had think. To, uh, You're a catalyst um, communicator with <laughs> the Climate Council, not a commission. Yeah, it had to sound like a serious thing, but we didn't want to imply that it was a government body. But also it had to move all very quickly. So within four, like I couldn't brief anything out prior to um, getting abolished because we didn't know when it would happen or how it would happen. We didn't want anyone catching wind of the idea. So in four days we built a website, a donation platform, a brand all of the things. And then we went out into the media. Usually with a crowdfunding campaign, you would have a crowd ready to go to. We didn't have a list. They deleted all the assets of the Climate Commission straight up. So we went through the media really to generate a crowd. And um, we were very fortunate that it's the Twitter conversation started in the middle of the night as soon as the website launched. And at, you know, 12.01, we got the first donation of $15. 
and um, I don't know how they heard about it. It just, you know, the website was up and we got a donation. And then through the night it started to get a bit of traction, so we'd raise $6,000 by 6 a.m., and then the media started to get hold of it. So we'd briefed out in advance and it was on the radio and then we did a press conference about 9am. When I got back to my laptop after that, we'd raised $128,000. And that's when the whirlwind really got going. So that first day, there was just media interest from around Australia, from around the world. There was so much social media interest. Twitter shut us down. They thought we must be purchasing uh, followers because we were growing so fast. (laughs) We had to just rope in lots of friends to help us manage the a whole bunch of the things that we were working on to make it to make it all work and um at the end of the day we raised we got to five hundred thousand dollar mark and you know amazing to have raised half a million dollars but that's when paypal shut us down because they thought thought we must be money laundering so i had to go and like try and get photos of tim's credit card and all of that sort of stuff driver's license in the middle of the night but the the great story of that was within a week we'd raised 1.3 million dollars which was more than the budget of the previous climate commission and helped us set up a new not-for-profit it was really this moment where it felt like people just came together around australia and said look science and clear um, accurate information is fundamental to democracy and we won't let this go and lots of 15,000 people put their hand in their pocket so it was amazing. So you know the Climate Council's been around a long time now it's like a public institution Mm. and I want to get into how it works and how your role of catalyzing communication works as a form of change. So one of the things that that I know the Climate Council does and what what has set its work apart, your work apart from, say, other communication is that you connect powerful messages around climate change with the people who are best to speak about it. Tell us a little bit more about this. Like what is, tell us more about this method. Yeah. So the way that we think about it is how does the public narrative need to change over the next sort of year to 18 months? And by public narrative, I mean, what is the tone of the debate? How are politicians, how is the media, how are the key commentators talking about the issue? And it goes back to my comment a little while ago about what is the envelope in which a decision maker is operating in? And to my mind, that is set by the communications environment. So how are we making it more and more favourable over time to get greater climate action and more unfavourable for those that want to take us backwards? So I try and work with our team to sort of cast ahead as to where the where we can move things and what that's required so for instance we might want to elevate the urgency of the issue in the in the public debate so that there is more emphasis on it so we think what is it going to take to get us there over time so that's a sort of strategic component then you think well which audiences need to be shifted and who are the people that will persuade those audiences and what are the platforms that those audiences are engaged with so where do we need to access them and when we're thinking about audience audience can be the type of people in the public that you might want to move so we've done a lot of work for instance in central Queensland which has been really important electorally there's many uh, many of the, the mining industries that have been around fossil fuels have been in those regions. How do we move those people? But it's also about how do we move the the press gallery journalists? How do we move the politicians? The sort of surround sound that is around that building, if you like, and that's not just at a federal level, that's also at the state level and the local level. How do we move the decision makers and what they are hearing over time? So I think about getting the message right, getting the audience, uh, understanding the audience, finding the right trusted communicators to connect with that audience, then finding the right platforms and then turning the volume up as loudly as you can. 
Awesome. So let I want to I want to explore an example. So, I mean, most people will remember the 2019 bushfires, the devastating Ooh. bushfires. But I don't think many people necessarily know exactly how how the very powerful communication that went on during that time around the role of climate change in in contributing to the horrific situation that we're in, like how that played out. Can you tell talk us through some of the catalyzing work that you that Climate Council played and and was involved in around that issue? It does take us back in time a number of years prior to that, because to get to a point where you can could attribute a major extreme weather event to climate change and have senior people come out and say this is climate change and have politicians like Scott Morrison uh, reluctantly acknowledge the role of climate change took was a long path. So in the first instance, back in 2013, when the Climate Council was established, there was some severe fires in the Blue Mountains. And we put a report together at that time saying climate change is driving these fires. And at that time, the Greens leader, Adam Band, had come out and said, this is climate change. And he was absolutely pilloried by the media, by Tony Abbott, by others saying, how dare you talk about climate change when um, people's lives are at risk? You're trying to make the most of this as a political issue. So we really stepped into that fray saying, no, you should be talking about climate change at this moment. And we made it clear that the reason you should talk about it is that just like when you have a car crash, you need to speak about the cause, whether it's speeding or whatever, to see action. We need to make sure when an extreme weather event happens, we talk about the cause so that our communities, that our extreme weather services, that our hospitals, etc., all know what is the cause and to know how to prepare for it in the future. So that was an unpopular position in 2013. And we got a lot of pushback, not just from the opposing side, but also from scientists, from a whole range of others saying you're going to um, reduce the credibility of the issue if you're talking about it at this time. People are going to perceive you as being political. But my view is that that is exactly the time you need to talk about it. People are looking at the issue. They're thinking about it. That's the time to make your case. So we've published maybe 20, 25 reports on bushfires in lots of different scenarios and it goes to the old communication strategy that you've got to say it thousands of times before your audience has heard it and really absorbed it. So the theory was we put that original report on bushfires in 2013 and then we iterated on it in lots of different ways for different localities, geographies, scenarios to then have lots of opportunities to tell a story over and over again. We also put out stories summarising the summer. You'd do stories at the start of the summer saying the summer's going to be bad and at the end of the summer summarising how the summer is bad. We came up with a phrase with uh, Professor Will Steffen called the angry summer, which we described a number of summers over the last sort of 10 years as being angry, which was a, a great media hook. So there was lots of effort in just continuing to show over time and convince people that extreme weather was linked to climate. And in fact, when these events happened, you needed to talk about it. So that was really the experts, so the bushfire experts in, in the science side, but it was also about how do you bring in other voices. So leading up to the 2019 fires, we'd brought on Greg Mullins as a climate counsellor. So he's a former fire and rescue chief. He's had lots of senior positions in that area. He's fought fires for sort of 50 years now. And it was very clear at the start of 2019 that there was a risk that by the end of the year we could see catastrophic bushfire conditions, and he was really worried about it. He'd been helping to bring 
putting together a group called Emergency Leaders for Climate Action. This is a project within the Climate Council which now has over 38 members that are senior people like Greg out of the fire services but now are retired so they can speak their mind. And that group issued a warning to Scott Morrison early in 2019, an open letter saying we'd love to meet you, brief you, the summer's going to be catastrophic. It was incredibly hard to get any traction with them. They didn't want a briefing until close to the end of the year we sent Greg over to the States because they'd had a catastrophic fire season and we did a great piece with 7.30. Zoe Daniels, now the representative down in the southeast of Melbourne, was the reporter at the time, just illustrating how bad the season was going to be and the consequences that we'd just seen in California could be here. Then as the fires sort of kicked off and they kicked off very early that year, I think it was October or even September, Greg, you know, was front and centre in the media and eventually David Littleproud and others in the government had to meet with them. But Greg and the rest of the emergency leaders, we just got them out all through the summer banging on about this. This is climate, this is climate, this is climate. And no one could question them because of their credibility. All these men in suits that have been in uniform for decades saying this is climate change was irrefutable and it was at a time when, you know, the government didn't want to acknowledge the impact of climate. At the start of the summer they were saying, how dare you talk about climate change in this context? And by the end of the summer even Scott Morrison had to sort of acknowledge that this was driven by climate. So I think that that was a critical moment in shifting people's views. COVID came in right after So I don't think as a nation we fully had that grieving process of how much was lost. Um, During that period, we also supported bushfire survivors and vets for climate action, a whole raft of other people, doctors, local mayors to speak out through a group called the Climate Media Centre, which is like a PR hub inside the Climate Council that supports other voices. So it wasn't just the fire chiefs. It was also having this surround sound, as I describe it, of lots of other voices, the local mayors for the first time, a whole group of local mayors coming out and saying this is climate change that had experienced the fires in their um in their localities and having vets talk about it and doctors talk about it and health professionals and a, a whole raft of others, bushfire survivors, etc. Yeah. It's extremely powerful with people whose sort of lived experience and credentials are other voices for the for the change. I mean, there's also, I mean, I, I love this because there's, there's so many different examples of work that you've done where you've sat behind the scene and supported others to speak, you know, like sometimes when people think about communication, they think it's, oh, people giving speeches or whatever, but that's not yeah. actually what you're doing, right? You're, you're supporting other people to express their voice and allowing them to do so in the context of a sort of plan and strategy about how to shift a narrative. Tell us about the work you've done with sport like I think that's a particularly powerful one in Australia where sport is so iconic it's so it's more popular than religion really it's not only our religion it's also more popular than religion how has this catalyzed role played out regarding sport like there's so many powerful sports leaders speaking out now how, how have you seen that emerge Yeah, well, one of the things I love about the Climate Council is we have the research capacity, which is really goes back to the roots of having all of these scientists involved with us, that anything we do, we usually have a publication that sort of kicks us off that says this is is a source of truth and then we get into the communication work and the community engagement work, et cetera. And so the sport work, we put out a report probably two and a bit years ago now, which really summarised 
the impact on Australian sport of the climate crisis. Going to, you know, local sport, the grounds are getting harder due to drought, the extreme weather events like the heat waves in Melbourne interrupting the tennis. And one of the headlines of it is we probably will need to move our season of sport to another time of year because so much of it is centred around our summers that are getting so, so hot and um, difficult for athletes to work within. So that was our sort of source of truth. We've then done a lot of work with the Climate Media Centre to support groups like Front Runners, which is a group that supports athletes that are concerned about climate change to speak out, and individual athletes over time, so people like Pat Cummins, who have done a um, remarkable job in um, in confidently speaking out on climate and making it relevant to their to their audiences. I think that there's been some really brave sport people recently that have been standing up to fossil fuel companies who have been major sponsors of the sporting club and saying, actually, I don't want to wear that name on my jersey anymore. And the fossil fuel industry is, you know, up to their eyeballs in sponsoring sport from the top pro elite like athletes. Like the tobacco too. industry was, right? Oh, it's disgusting. And, you know, a lot of these clubs would be thinking, how, how the hell am I going to get this sponsorship if I don't have the fossil fuel industry, but that's one of their key tactics to being enmeshing themselves with the community. So that's an area of focus for us going forward as well. Yeah, yeah. Sort of holding them, holding the, allowing the sporting industry to express its own interests. Like, I mean, my, my child has been trying to play cricket in 39, 40 degrees. I mean, it's not okay. Climate change yeah. is not okay for the elite athletes. It's not okay for just your kids as well. Like this is all mm. actually, a, it's not an indirect issue for something like sport. You know, I think people are always, they're speaking out of turn. Like you can't play many of these sports <laughs> if we have catastrophic climate change. Like that's the point, right? That's exactly right. Like last week in March in Melbourne, we had a 38 degree day. Like that was just, you know, it's just so unusual to have that sort of weather at that time of year. You know, the ext- we call it often the summer, the extreme weather season, and it's just expanding and getting bigger and bigger. In Sydney, you've seen fires start as early as sort of August and then end in May, like there's fires almost the whole year round in, um, in New South Wales in some years. So, you know, the impact on all of the ways that we live, but particularly those outdoor activities is really profound. Yeah. And look, I feel like I could talk to you all day about different amazing communication strategies, but why don't you just, uh, I know that you've also done work with cultural figures and created a space where, you know, where the artists, musicians have also been able to, been supported to communicate. Is is there a story there you might want to share as well? Yeah, we take a group most years to Heron Island, which is a beautiful island on the reef, which is a research station off the reef on Queensland. You're surrounded by so many birds. It's a bird rookery. And the group that we take is generally people that have a, a cultural influence in Australia with a group of scientists and others. And it's quite a, a loose program, but it's there to be a really safe space for artists and, artists and cultural influencers to be inspired to take a step in their life. And we're not very prescriptive about that. We're really looking for people to take that in the, the direction they want to. Again, kind of going back to the catalyst idea. So We've had people start art exhibitions off the back of it. We've had people write songs. We've had people start new organisations like Surfers for Climate Action came out of that with a whole range of pro surfers being engaged in climate and trying to get surfers engaged. And again, like how do we engage that particular audiences of communities down the coast of Australia? So there's been lots of really interesting things that have come out of the Heron Island experience. And I think my learning from that is 
often if you get, a, a, and it goes back to the AYCC days, you get people together, you get them a sense of this is my tribe of people, we're all trying to be purposeful, you give them enough tools that they can go and make it real in their own sphere of influence. Yeah. And you know what? I I hear two things in that. One, I feel like is a recognition that spontaneity is less often than organization, right? Like the that actually a lot of the conversation about that has shifted to be much more aware about climate change didn't just happen by accident. Like actually it's, it's an, it is an, it is evidence that people can make change. The fact that we're talking about climate change is evidence that people are capable of changing a conversation, not just that we're lucky enough that this thing has happened. That's absolutely right. Like if you look back at extreme weather events, Extreme weather events in and of themselves don't change people's mind and make them more worried about climate change. It's only when they're contextualised by people saying this is climate change as loudly and repeatedly as possible that you actually see the public opinion change. Like Australia's, our public opinion change on extreme weather is much more significant than any other jurisdiction I've seen anywhere in the world. I think it's partly because we do extreme weather communications pretty well in Australia, whereas many other places people don't talk about it so there there isn't the degree of understanding that the worsening extreme weather events are actually linked to climate let alone then drawing the dots to fossil fuels and those companies that have been obstructing action for so long yeah yeah absolutely and then the, i think the second thing i see in your strategy and you call it catalyzing you know in, in my world i might use the word co-design where it's like you're coming with a level of expertise with the scientists standing on your shoulders you know, here's the evidence and and here's some communication strategies, but you're, you're then meeting constituencies, whether they're emergency workers or they're sport, sports stars or they're artists at, with their expertise as well, standing by its side. They're, they're, they've got their own way of interpreting things and seeing things and lived experience of this kind of thing. And these two forms of expertise science research and knowledge of it and sort of cultural commentating in whatever meet to create this sort of catalyzing of a powerful message it's not just having one um super duper you know superstar communicating for everyone it's actually about having thousands of different communicators yeah and it goes back to the first my first point about thinking about my own role thinking oh i've got to change the world how do i do it well no one person is going to change the world we each have a capacity and call it the sphere of influence around us who can we within our networks influence and where can that change go it's like the pebble in the pond radiating outwards um that we can all make a difference but it's just thinking about how that can be most strategic and and useful and look i mean a final question right i think your story is a really profound one from being a a passionate young person a bit devastated when you identified climate change to then finding a way to take action and and live a life that has been a if we found a space to make change if people were listening to this wishing that they knew if they could do something like what lesson have you learned from that from that journey that you've taken that you would impart to them today i think my lesson and this goes not just from my own experience but watching so many others is to just take the first steps and to start connecting with others that care about it it's very hard to do anything alone so connecting with others and then just getting started and it doesn't have to be world changing to begin with everyone that does any sort of change has humble roots the story that they tell ends up from the end to the start if you like but the start is usually pretty pretty small and I think about something like a group 
uh, Farmers for Climate Action, it was very challenging for the farmers to start speaking out about climate because in the areas that they were from, they often felt very alone and unsupported. But they, through creating Farmers for Climate Action, they gradually found a network and we did a bit of work, well, a lot of work with them early on in how do you communicate and it was very softly, softly because putting their head above the parapet, I suppose it was 2014, 2015, felt really hard. But over time, the more of them that put the head up above the parapet, the more confident they've become and now they're a very significant um, national organisation. They've made dramatic inroads with the National Party, with many um, farming-based organisations and in rural and regional Australia. So, you know, change, change comes and it's based on persistence and the people that show up and just keep pushing. Like I think that's, that's ultimately the biggest lesson. The squeaky wheel is really critical. you just got to keep persisting and there's going to be dark times. There's going to be social change is steps forward and steps back and sort of roller coaster. But I think the longer I'm in it, now I'm sort of 40 and looking back over almost 20 years of activism, you've got to just keep trying to bend that arc of justice <laughs> That's it, right? <laughs> it doesn't bend quickly, but uh, when we hope it does bend towards justice. Thank you so much for, for sharing the story of the council and your own story in how you've sort of found the, found a space to, to be a change maker. It's a, it's, I think it's a really inspiring one. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Our digital producer at Changemakers is Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. And we're also on Twitter at Changemakers99. And I'm on Twitter at Amanda Tats with two Ts. Check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the video content on the Changemakers Organising School if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. making.